Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models episode 111. I'm Steve Kwan. And I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, it's just me and Brother Matt again. No guests, because we're going to get back into the dirt here. We got a very specific, grimy topic that I'm looking forward to talking about. We're going to talk about an amazing position. One of my favorite positions, knee on belly, sometimes called the knee ride or knee mount. Everyone knows what we're talking about. We're talking about the one where you stick your knee in someone's intestines and you make them regurgitate their lunch. Matt, are you a fan of knee on belly? Huge fan of knee on belly. I definitely use it quite a bit. And it's one of those positions that comes in handy, especially when your partner is about to regard. You know, if you can, you can transition to and from mount and side control from there. It's a very mobile position. Yeah, it's an excellent tool to have. And it it causes a lot of discomfort on the person who's on the receiving end. So I am a big neon belly fan. You know, that's one of the reasons I really love neon belly. I find that as I get older, I get meaner. And as I get meaner, I enjoy neon belly more. Neon belly is a great way to be <laughs> mean to your partner in the most optimal way. <laughs> you know, it's, you yes. can you can literally like see someone get demoralized if you knee ride them for a long time with neon belly. And one of the things I like about the position is that it is surprisingly stable. You know, you can hold that for a long time. So it's a great hub position. You know, you can kind of get there. You can use that to transition to the next thing and you can hold that position and just kind of like just sap away at your opponent's energy while you're sitting there kind of like figuring out what the next step is going to be. So I I really enjoy the position. Now, Matt, you train a lot more no-gi than I do. And my question for you is, how do you find neon belly as a position in no-gi? I mean, in gi, it's amazing. But do you find it harder to control and stabilize without the gi? I actually don't find it harder to control in no-gi, to answer your question. It is one of those positions that I I use it just like how you described as a hub. And when I get there, I'm not looking to hang out there for extended amounts of time. A lot of the time, one of the strengths I find for Neon Belly is it will create reactions because your opponent basically has to move. They can't just sit there and eat the Neon Belly all day. They have to try to invert. They have to try to shrimp out or come up on an underhook. And every time they do this, you know, they expose a lot of different attack vectors. So a common one would be they come up on an underhook and you can enter a front headlock. And front headlock is one of my favorite systems right now. I'm studying the front headlock, enter the system. It's fantastic. I find myself there a lot, especially when our opponents are coming up on underhooks from the bottom. The front head is just such a good system. A lot of the time they'll expose a lever. We can enter into Kimuras. We can top spin and hopefully get some kind of limb exposure. A lot of the time your opponent in in their regarding movements, they'll expose an underhook or or their wrist. And it's it's a great position to just lead your opponent down a path of defensive cycles where they're in this downward spiral where they're desperately trying to get their guard back. And you are just, you know, if you can do what uh, what Rob says, stay ahead of the defense, you can maintain that strong offensive cycle. And because you have so many different positions at your uh, at your disposal, it is just It's a fantastic system to go to. So like I said, I use it. I don't use it to hold it. I use it to create reactions. And then from there, I look to enter other systems. Yeah, I love that neon belly is such a great hub position. And we've talked about this prior on the podcast. Some people will refer to this as a pit stop, basically where you find a position that you can stabilize. You have a lot of options from there. And the best hub positions are ones where you can get your opponents to make predictable mistakes. And from Neon Belly, there's a lot of those, 
right? And like you said, Matt, the guy on bottom is not going to want to sit there in neon belly. It's not a good position for him to just sit there. So there's a very, very good chance that there's going to be some motion made when you get there. So that's one of the reasons I like it. In fact, when I pass now, I rarely pass to traditional side control. Like if I go to a pass, I try not to fall down onto my opponent. I try to pass and stay standing, meaning I try to pass directly into Neon Belly. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, there's so many things we could discuss with Neon Belly. Like, when am I going to use it? How do I maintain stabilization? What are the main predictable reactions I can I can expect? So, like, we could go down deep, deep dives on this position. So I guess we just get started. I think the first thing when we're talking about Neon Belly is discussing how to use it, right? And how to be stable in that position. You know, I see a lot of people who, you know, come from other schools and train with me. And when they go neon belly, they're doing uh, a form of neon belly that is, let's just say it's not, it doesn't allow them to have the best stability. I was always taught when you're in neon belly that basically both knees should be in a level plane, almost like you're in a squat. Uh, Rather than having one knee down, that's a definite no-no because you can't effectively post out wide. You also can't effectively put weight on the knee on the belly. So if you, you know, a big mistake a lot of beginners do is when they go knee on belly, their other knee is on the floor. And so their knees are not in a level plane. And when you do that, it's just the guy will just shrimp out and move. But if you have like a squat or a sumo position and you're in knee on belly and your shoelaces are flush hugging their hip and your knee is, uh, you know, on or across the center line, it is a very powerful position. And, you know, a lot of the time I prefer to drive my knee across the center line because I, I find that it kind of flattens the far hip. And it prevents them from turning up into you. Not that that's the worst thing in the world, because, you know, as we'll discuss later, there's front heads and all types of underhooks and things from there. But I think it's important to have shoelaces flush to the hip, knee in good position, either on the center line or across the center line, a vertical posture and the other foot based out. And then another thing to discuss is there recently we've seen a lot of these leg entries, especially like backside 50-50 and backside saddle positions. And of course, uh, Robert Deagle, he's, if you look on his Instagram, he's taken deep dives into the reverse shin on shin position he's been working on, of course, entering a lot of backside heel hook positions. So he's just, you know, really exploring these options. And uh, if you stand with a vertical posture in a neon belly and your hips are high enough, your opponent can definitely invert into the backside 50-50, which is becoming a very common leg locking position at high levels. And it's, I love the position. I think it's one of the best finishing positions ever. And we should discuss in future episodes why I think the backside heel hooking positions are so powerful. But yeah, I think I think to remedy that, it's important to keep a low low stance but a vertical posture. And then a great detail is the knee that is on the belly connect the same side elbow with your knee so that you create a frame that blocks your opponent from inverting into your legs. Yes, 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 yes. That is that is one of the main things because if you stand up too tall and you don't have that knee elbow connection from the top, a lot of the time they can start to off balance you a little bit and keep their back round and then roll into that backside 50 50. And before you know, if you know, if you don't, if you've never seen that attack, you're like, oh, what the hell happened, right? You're in a heel. Yeah. And even before all of that stuff became innovated, I always had this problem where if I left access to my hip open, if my opponent could get their foot into there, they can kind of push you away. So that's a great detail is making that elbow knee connection so that the knee that is going onto their stomach, your same side elbow, you want to kind of pinch that in because you want to deny the ability for the opponent to get to your hip. Because if they can throw their leg up and get it onto your hip or wrap it around your leg, they can start doing all sorts of leg entanglement entry. So having that knee, mm-hmm. that elbow knee connection to protect that knee is actually super duper critical. For sure. And, and I think it's important to remember that when you're on the bottom, you know, and your opponent is in neon belly, when they have a vertical posture, that's, it's not good for the person on the bottom because You know, and now we're just kind of talking about center of gravity. I don't even know if we've discussed center of gravity before, but if your head is directly over your hips, you know, as Danaher says, your center of gravity is essentially the knot on your belt, right where your belly button is. That is your center of gravity. And if your head is directly over your center of gravity, essentially you have a vertical posture and you're going to have, you know, really good ability to base out and sort of, I guess you're kind of like, like belly surfing the guy, right? From the bottom, it's really crucial to find ways to force your opponent to bring their head away from their center of gravity and essentially make them put hands on the floor. So anytime you can disrupt that vertical posture, if you're on the bottom, 
and you can rock your opponent to put hands on the floor, your entries into leg entanglements will be so much easier because essentially they've taken a lot of weight off of you. And, uh, you know, ways you can do this, again, this is going to be a little bit difficult to visualize, but my, my favorite method from the bottom neon belly is taking a, like a cross lat post. So I would be reaching across body under the armpit with an upside down grip. And from there, you create a strong frame that's hidden by having a cross lap post, or you could also take a cross hamstring post with your hand. And from here, you can pull yourself underneath your opponent. And again, just doing what you can to bring their hands to the floor. So as we always talk about on this podcast, when you're in bottom positions, the goal is always get your opponent's hands to the floor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that for neon belly, it's a lot easier to play this position in the gi because once you get good gi grips on the guy on the bottom, it's easier to kind of track him and keep him where you want it to be. Whereas in no gi, yeah. you do run that risk of getting off balanced, of the guy getting to your leg, or of the guy just being able to get to his side and get out. In the gi, the yeah. ability to grab the sleeve or the lapel or the collar makes it really easy to- Or keep, the pants. <laughs> even the pants makes it easy to keep the person tracked to the position that you want so that you can kind of follow them and keep them where you want them to go. Do you have any recommendations in terms of how you would play this position differently in the gi versus in no gi? I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. I think all the points you just touched on where you have you can control your opponent by proxy just by grabbing the gi there and taking these grips, you know, they have devastating effects, especially when you're using an opposing force like a like a knee driving down into the torso. And the thing about nogi is we just don't have that luxury. We just don't have those fixed grips when I'm in the gi and I and I'm grabbing sleeves. Generally, I'm pulling the sleeve off the ground to contrast the opposing knee driving down on the belly. Of course, the lapel works the same way. You're kind of picking up the lapel. But when it's nogi, a lot of the time what I'll do from there is I either put my hands on the floor above my opponent's head or I search for underhooks so that I can get to a closer chest-to-chest -chest position, possibly progress to a mount. You're obviously underhooks are super valuable in the gi too, but in nogi, when you can't just grab sleeves and lapels, you, you got to look for ways to gain inside position. And underhooks is one of the main ways, underhooks and reverse underhooks. Another strategy I've been using a ton when on top is uh, the grip fighting from the top, which is something that we we don't really talk about as, as much, you know? Like we talk about getting grips from the bottom, but I've realized in nogi and in gi, if you, if you engage a guard or let's say you're in neon belly and your opponent's framing on you, if you can intercept their wrist and pin their wrist to the floor, you do two things. You take away their use of that hand. So they're, you know, that side of their body's pinned to the floor now and they can't frame or, or pummel with that hand. And the other thing is, is you gain a tremendous amount of base because you are now basing out on their, on the end of their lever. So I've been doing that a lot as well, uh, pinning wrists to the floor and uh, neon belly is a great position to do that. But I mean, the position itself, like my application of the position, aside from the grips, it really, for me, doesn't change too much. Again, I use it as a hub. I use it to, to go to north-south and, and mount and, you know, do top steps to the other side, maybe get the back exposure or just, you know, hold them down in a side control on the other side and just create reactions. I think that's where my main use of Neon Belly lies is creating reactions offensively. And also, you know, I love going there when they're about to regard. You can just insert your knee into their hip and it, it prevents them from bringing their knee to their elbow and getting an escape from side control. So those are kind of my two main applications for that position. Yeah. And as someone who, at least prior to the pandemic, was a lighter guy, let me tell you, I'm several weight classes up now. But as someone who prior to the pandemic was a lighter guy, I used to avoid a lot of passes where you drop down on top of your opponent simply because I was so light that I couldn't rely on that, right? If you're a heavier guy, when you're passing, sometimes you can lead with your shoulder or your head and the gravity alone will be enough to pin your opponent. But if you're fighting a much bigger opponent, sometimes if you try those passes, they'll just push you aside or even throw you over. So over the years, I've adopted the strategy of trying to pass while standing and to stay standing. What this means is when I pass, I'll often pass, instead of passing to side control, I'll pass to knee on belly. 
And one of the beauties of that is you get more points for doing that, right? People sometimes forget that Neon Belly is a scoring position. In IBJJF rules, you're going to get two points for it. And a lot of people kind of, you know, they'll pass to side control and they'll hang out there and they're so intent on keeping side control that they forget if they just pop up and put their knee on the guy's stomach, they get two more points. So if nothing else, it's a good position to play because if you're comfortable going there and then going back out of it, it's a good way to get a few extra points and so- something to think about. Um, And additionally, like I said, I find as a smaller guy, I find passes to neon belly to be a lot more stable than passes to side control. Yeah, I mean, it's all situational. I don't know that I would argue that I think neon belly is more stable than side control. When we're talking about using weight to hold positions, it's important to discuss that, you know, weight on top without wedges is garbage. Like, in fact, it could actually work against you. You know, imagine you have side control on someone, but you have no wedges around them. So you have no cross face, you know, you have no underhook. You're literally just putting your weight on top of them. It could actually work against you because you could be very easily manipulated. And the pin, the pinning action generally revolves around wedges by means of inside position and then reinforced with body weight. So that's that's something that, you know, is really important that you can't just be heavy. You have to have inside position and ideally inside position and wedges around your opponent's body reinforced by by being fat, right? <laughs> um, but but uh, I don't I don't know that I would say it's a a better pinning position, but it's certainly oh, no, 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 no. a use. Yeah, it's certainly a useful pinning position. You know, the point that you just touched on IBJJF competition. I mean, it could be it's one of the easiest ways to get a quick two points if you already pass the guard. If you're in side control and you just pop up to a neon belly, you know, if, if you're there for a second and then they regard or whatever. You get an advantage at least. And if you're there for three seconds, you get two extra points. So, I mean, who doesn't love that? So it's definitely a it's definitely a position that needs to be used. And if you neglect the neon belly, then you're definitely taking out one of those main hub positions, that defensive cycle position that can really cause a lot of distress on the bottom player. And you're definitely denying yourself uh, some some much needed points in competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess I should clarify, I'm not saying that Neon Belly is better than side control, just that for my particular game and the kind of concerns that I, at least that I used to have when passing, it gives a degree of mobility that I like and it makes it harder for my opponent to use my body weight against me. Plus, the other benefit too is then my opponent can't mess with the moneymaker, right? I hate it when you try to pass and you drop down (laughs) and you get a palm into your eye socket. Yeah. And again, you know, it's one of the, it seems like a weakness, but it's actually a strength of the position. I believe when we contrast with side control, you know, side control is such a powerful position, you know, chest to chest, just driving all that weight down, cross facing, whatever. But the thing is, is that it's very difficult for your opponent to move from, from a side control. So the predictable reactions are, I find not as dynamic because there's just by nature less movement, but in a neon belly, your opponent kind of has more freedom to move because you're not chest to chest on them. So you will see them scramble and turtle and try and come up on underhooks and things like that. And so I feel like, honestly, sometimes there's more offensive positions to enter from the neon belly just because of the reactions and the panic that it creates. You know, when you pass someone's guard and you go to side control and you pin them down, a lot of the time your opponent will be like, okay, I got my guard passed. I'm going to, I'm going to chill for a second then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to look for my escape and they kind of settle down. But in Neon Belly, you know, very rarely do you go on Neon Belly on someone and they just lie there like they've like they quit. Most of the time they're going to offer some some responses. And then from there, that is kind of your in my opinion, that's one of your optimal times to attack and enter into a front head or triangle or a Kimura underhook, whatever you're going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And additionally, because you're up and you're not lying down on the guy, you have the advantage of having all of that extra mobility, which makes it, in my opinion, easier to transition to other positions and to transition around. So it allows you to really burn your opponent's energy down because if they are trying to move, and like you said, they probably are trying to move, it's quite easy to transition to other positions or to other point scoring opportunities as well. Yeah, I I generally, you know, we should probably discuss how the points work with Neon Belly and competition because I'm sure most senior practitioners are aware of these rules, 
but maybe there's some white belts and blue belts out there who aren't really familiar with how that works. So if you pop up to, you know, you pass the guard, Steve, and you go to Neon Belly for three seconds, you get the guard pass points and you get the two for the Neon Belly. But you should know that, you know, if you go side to side and you go to the other Neon Belly, there is no extra two points. Like you you, you cannot farm points with Neon Belly. <laughs> Yeah, you can't dupe points like it's Diablo 1 and, you you know, (laughs) basically when you go in there and you uh, go to Neon Belly, you know, if you dismount Neon Belly of your own choice and then pop up back to Neon Belly, you don't get extra points. Uh, The way that that works is your opponent on the bottom needs to offer a response, which most of the time happens, right? Most of the time your opponent on the bottom will try to regard for all their life. If they offer that defensive response and you lose the position due to that defensive response and then you immediately put them back in Neon Belly, you could be looking at an extra five points because, you know, if you're in Neon Belly and then they frame, they get their knees back in front, you know, for that second, technically they established a guard, right? And then if you push those knees out of the way again, back in a Neon Belly, that's an extra five points again because technically you did pass their guard and enter the Neon Belly again, right? In a way, you could, if you feel that confident against an opponent, you could farm points, I guess you could say, by letting them regard. <laughs> this is actually something I do, I see some guys do, and it's, you know, you, obviously you have to have a very a high level to do this, especially when you're fighting like black belts and stuff, but, but it is a tactic you do see, and it is a smart tactic. I guess you can actually farm points with Neon Belly, and interestingly, you do it the exact same way that you farm points and farm items in Diablo, which is like you yeah. walk away and then you come back and then you walk away and then you come back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's going to be a few people who understand what we're talking about. And there's going to be a few people who probably kids who just have absolutely no clue what we're going on here about. Yeah, it's a little bit before the uh, <laughs> this generation's time. But yeah, Diablo was the bomb back in the day. Oh, man, man. And also, also important to recognize that if you have a position like a mount, And then, you know, your opponent doesn't give you any responses and you go to a neon belly from mount just for no reason. You don't get points for that. Again, your opponent on the bottom has to basically have to frame and get you to dismount of of their own defenses. And then from there, you can you can enter the neon belly and get points. But you can't you can't move backwards from a dominant position like mount and then just go to neon belly and expect to get points you're just not allowed to do that. So let me, let me just clarify something. Are you saying that if I'm mounted on you and you do like a big hip bump that makes me lose the position, but I'm able to salvage it and land back in neon belly. Are you saying that I will get those neon belly points, even though I'm technically under the IBJJF rules, I'm transitioning from a superior position like mount to, I guess, an inferior one like neon belly, I would still get the two points. Well, a less a less superior. I don't know. I don't know if I would say the word inferior, but a less superior, or maybe that is the definition. <laughs> it's of literally the definition. Oh <laughs> uh, God. Um, but but yeah, no, you would get the points because it was based off of a defensive movement. But if I if Interesting. I have if I have like a mount and I'm absolutely like mauling your face and you can't move at all, there's no bridging. You know, you have no defenses. I've got you dead to rights. And then I'm like, oh, I'm going to be a cheap fuck and I'm just going to get two extra points here. And I just dismount and go to Neon Belly. You won't get points. There has to be there has to be some defensive action that causes that to happen. Huh. Interesting. Let me ask you another question. I play this like Neon Belly variant sometimes that is kind of half Neon Belly, half side control. Basically, what I'll be doing is. You know how when you're like you're in side control, you got the shoulder of justice driving into the guy's face and sometimes you bring your knee up to kind of check their hip. You know what I'm talking about? So they can't regard. Yeah, yeah. I use that a lot when I have a a chest to chest side control, but then I feel like they're moving. You know, I feel like they're they're about to get that knee elbow escape or there's there's a disconnect between your hip and theirs. And you just you feel that there's a pocket of space where they might be able to bring their knee in. Yeah. Going to a knee ride there is an excellent option, even from even from the uh, the chest to chest position. And it's worth points, too. That's what I was going to ask is what what happens here if you're still chest to chest on the guy in side control and you actually bring your knee up so far that your knee is riding on the guy. So basically you're in a knee ride, but you're still chest to chest. You're in a knee ride, but you're still chest to chest. Do you get points for that? Or do you have to be postured up to get the points? Nope. There's no vertical posture required for points. You can, you can be chest to chest and have the knee ride. The only, the only thing you need is for your free leg to be posted out. Of cool. So that's awesome. It legally, it doesn't have to be posted at the 
90 degree knee bent position that I prefer. You could have your legs straight out if you wanted to, but your knee has to be off the floor to get the points. Cool. So if, if you're in side control in your chest to chest, you don't even need to give up the chest to chest. If you want to get the knee nope. on belly points, just bring your knee up onto his chest, get the two points. You can bring it back down again after. Correct. And there you could, in this fashion, you could totally dupe points. Like you could, you could be chest to chest that you start to feel the regard, you bump up to a neon belly. And then as you know, if they offer any defenses, you can kind of like, you could be like, Oh, I lost the neon belly, go back to side control and then pop up into neon belly again. You know, there's another tactic I've seen. And I know this because I've been fucked by this in competition before when I was a brown belt, literally before I started studying the rules. I know brown belt, not knowing the rules, pretty stupid. But one time in, in a competition, I was in the absolute division. I fought a guy, he mounted me and he's just, I mean, I'm, I'm getting mauled at this point. Like he was winning by a lot and he couldn't sub me. We actually, it went the distance, but he was in mount. And, you know, every time you're in mount, one of the most common ways to regard is to turn and hook the ankle and then start to try and get into a deep half guard or whatever, and then rally from there. But he would, he would basically let me just get the quarter guard. I guess you would want to call it from this this perspective. He would let me hook his ankle, but he he was aware that I, what I was trying to do. So he would just deny me any further progression. And then he would just basically face crush me with his chest to chest and then use his other foot to free his ankle and get another seven points, right? Like every time, every time, <laughs> dude, it's like if you're in mount and you, when you regard, you really need to regard with, you need to be careful that you're, you're regarding with the intent to get back to a good position. Cause if you're just trapping the ankle and then he holds you there and like freezes leg again, you just gave up three for the pass and four for the mount again. Right. So this, this is also another way that the person on top can gain a huge advantage, like a sizable advantage that is almost impossible to come back from at higher levels. So I feel like we should yeah. just do a whole episode <laughs> on point farming. Yeah, yeah, that's actually kind of a good idea. How to how to how to use the system for you, <laughs> you know? Yeah, maybe that maybe it's something to talk about. That'd be fun. Oh man, oh man. And I know from personal experience because I've been absolutely fucked by that in competition before. So <laughs> learn from my mistakes. One thing that we haven't talked about yet, which I man, I regret not adding this to my game earlier, is the reverse neon belly. Because, you know, normally when you go to Neon Belly, you have the advantage of facing your opponent, which means that you can start setting up like choking threats and arm lock threats. But sometimes, you know, if your opponent starts taking their near side arm, they're going to start trying to mess with the leg that's knee riding them, right? There's a lot of escapes they can do where they like grab, you know, they go under that leg or something. And if you just let them start messing with your leg, there's a good chance they're going to like twist your leg and get out somehow. And if they do that, if they start bringing their near side hand in, to try to mess with your the leg that you're knee riding them with that's a great opportunity to switch to the reverse knee ride because if you do that oh hell yeah normally you wind up crushing the hand that was attacking you so now they're in a doubly shitty spot because not only are they being knee ridden but you're kneeling on top of the hand (laughs) and and on top of their chest so they can't even use that hand now that's a great way to set up other transitions as well because now you're not even fighting two hands you're just fighting one Now, I believe that reverse knee ride does not give points. Am I correct? I believe you are correct. Yeah. So if you're going to play this game, probably you're going to want to transition between regular knee ride and reverse knee ride. But this is something I've started doing reactively is, you know, back in the day when I would knee ride someone, if they'd start grabbing my my knee leg, I would just try to like be stubborn and not move and they would get out. But what I do now is I switch to the reverse knee ride and then they really can't do much about it and I can set up something else and then I can always go back to the regular knee ride if I want. Yeah, I that's actually now, good. Hey, to- there's a question. There's what's that? There's a question. If I knee ride and then they try to grab my leg and I switch to the reverse knee ride and then I switch back to the regular knee ride, is that another two points? Yep, because because they they offered a defensive reaction like framing on your knee and they're probably hip escaping or trying to hip escape. Since you didn't choose to exit the knee ride, you can totally get extra points there. You just can't dismount from the knee ride or transition from a mount to a knee ride of your own choice without any defensive reactions, if that makes sense. It does. I guess the question, though, is when you transition from knee ride to reverse knee ride, is the ref going to look at that as you actually left the knee ride position? 
Yes, if if your opponent didn't do any, like if he's not framing, if he's just lying there, like he's pinned, and you do that, you won't get points. But if he, even if he just frames and starts to like bump, and you transition, you could totally get two extra points off of that. If the ref thinks that it was a, a defensive movement that caused you to exit the move, for sure, you could, you could totally do that. We should totally do a premium episode on Patreon about point farming. Yeah, I think it's actually, the more we talk about it, I think it's kind of a cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should totally do that. The reverse knee ride is, is actually a really powerful position. One of the, you know, if you go to knee ride and then the guy manages to create a knee elbow connection and disrupts your knee ride, the, the reverse knee ride is one of the best answers. And I guess personally for me, I've never pinned the hand like you talk about. I will almost always pin the bicep or the chest or trigger warning knee on neck like the knee on neck position is actually like super powerful where your shin is across the neck and from there a lot of time what that opens up is the space between the knee and the elbow so you can very easily go back to knee ride doing this combination it's actually really effective and really what it is is it's almost an example of blading right like you're you're Mm -hmm. in neon belly and the guy you know he starts making his defense he puts his feet in base so he can start shrimping and bumping. And then he puts his hands as frames so that he's addressing the force. And all you do is completely do like a 180 hip shift and you go to a reverse neon belly. So now your your force is working in the other direction. I mean, it totally disrupts the defenses and allows you to, to transition from there. And, um, you know, we, we should mention that I think one of the best transitions from neon belly is north-south. So if you're going to use a neon belly game, make sure that you use north-south and top spins and reverse knee ride to complement that. I don't think the knee ride on its own as a position the way it is, its its strength is pretty limited. But when you start to join other positions to that and look at it as a hub position and go to north-south and reverse knee rides and things like that, the, the position gets extremely diverse and, and very robust in its offensive uh, capabilities. Awesome, awesome. And, and to clarify my earlier point, when I suggested reverse knee riding the arm that's grabbing your leg, I did not mean like reverse knee ride on top of the hand. I meant what you said, like reverse knee ride on top of the bicep. I feel like if you reverse right. knee rode on top of the hand, you would not be stopping them from getting up onto their side, which in a bit is probably something I'd like to explore and talk about a bit. Yeah. And a lot of the time, a lot of the time when you go reverse knee ride, they're trying to bring their knees to their chest, right? That, that's really what they want to do is create an inside position where their knees and elbows are connected. And mm-hmm. and usually most people, like higher level guys, will try to kind of create an inversion with this position so that they can get back to a guard. I think we have done an episode on North-South, right? Uh, Did we do one on yes, we have. Episode 69. Right, 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 right. <laughs> It's important to always remember that like you need to prevent them from bringing their knees inside. And if you can do that, essentially, you're going to maintain your your dominant position. So if you're going to drop into a north south, you know, keep your head and your shoulders lower than the line of their knees and their shins. If you do that, they're never going to get their knees back inside. And also when you go to a position like a reverse knee on belly or even knee on belly for that matter, a lot of the time what you're going to get is your opponent turning up into one side and trying to frame and as we all know, extended frames become levers, right? So this is a perfect opportunity to get two-on-ones, you know, like a Kimura or get a an underhook or a reverse underhook, some kind of control over that lever that where you can really transition into something better, right? So yeah, creates reactions and exposes levers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you brought up an awesome point too, where you talked about the guy on the bottom trying to establish an elbow-knee connection. I mean, if we want to translate this whole position into Bernanke language. Basically what knee on belly is, is you're using a wedge, which is your knee to split apart your opponent's elbow and knee. Correct. And you're basically sitting it on their belly and that's preventing your opponent on the bottom from creating an elbow knee connection, which is basically one way that you could regard. And one of the strategies that the guy on the bottom can use to try to recover the position is to get their elbow and knee back together after they get your knee off their stomach. Like if I, if I can push your knee off of my stomach and then get my elbow and knee back together to create that that closed circuit, then I've kind of escaped the position. So that's basically how you would translate this into kind of Rob's framework. Yeah, correct. And funny enough, as we discussed earlier in the episode, knee elbow connection isn't just valuable for the person on bottom, the person on the top having a knee ride and connecting their elbow also creates 
a structure across the lap that prevents them from bringing their knees inside. So it works two ways, you know, it defensively knee and elbow, knee elbow connection is good. And also offensively, it, it will help you maintain that position a lot better. Yeah. 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 Now, one of the things you mentioned earlier is that there are a series of predictable responses from knee on belly when the guy's on bottom. One of the benefits of this position is the guy can still move and you can kind of guess at what he's going to do. I would posit that the three most likely things the guy in the bottom is probably going to try to do is number one, get to their side because that allows them to either, if they're facing towards you, they can dogfight up or in regard, or if they're facing the other way, they can grand be your turtle away. Yeah. Or come up on it like a single, right? That's what you mean by dogfight, right? Yeah. They can, they can dogfight up into a single or they can regard if they can turn towards you. I would say that item number two that they might try is they might start messing with your feet right? Either there's a few different sweeps that you can do by either, I guess they're not sweeps technically because you're not in guard, uh, but reversals you can do either by messing with and manipulating either your near side leg or your far side leg. So you will see guys try to use their hands to grab at your feet. And I'd say that number three is the guy might try to kick their feet up and, you know, get their foot on your hip or go for a full inversion and into a leg entanglement. I'd say that those are probably the three most likely things to happen from that position. Matt, do you think I missed anything? I mean, they could turn away and turtle. If they do this, they give you their back, right? <laughs> but that's what I said, right? Like I said, get up onto their side is, is the first thing. And that could be either oh, towards okay. you or away from you. Right. Yeah, th- those are kind of the main reactions, right? They could try and enter your legs by off-balancing you. They could try and come up on a single. They could try to turtle. They could try to just bring knees to elbows. And then from there, try and spin into a guard where they're facing you. Again, this is where controlling their legs, whether by the ankles or even just framing on the tops of their knees and keeping their knees away from their elbows is is a really strong method of preventing them from creating that knee elbow connection and, and sort of dominating the position. But like I said, if I'm talking about an offensive sort of application, like where do I like to go most from neon bellies? Obviously, mount is right there. You know, it's one of the more powerful positions. But usually I'll look for either a lever control like a Kimura or an underhook so that I can flatten the far shoulder and continue my pressure or the front headlock. I think when they when opponents come up into like a turtle position or or into a single position, man, you know, the front headlock is right there. It is super powerful. And I'm realizing that the front headlock is if you can dial in some different guillotine attacks for different scenarios, but the mechanics are all different, by the way. That is one of the, it's one of the premier finishing positions. I truly believe that. And if it fails, you know, you can always sweep with it. You can mount with it, finish from mount. So if you're using neon belly a lot and you like uh, even just side control, you know, when you're working your top positions, I think it's a very strong strategy to, to build your front headlock systems as a response to underhooks and, and your opponent trying to come up into the dogfight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the front headlock. And actually, that's another topic maybe for an episode one day because it is such a killer finishing position. Yeah, even especially for self-defense, right? Yeah. Like when you see street fights, how often do you see a guy get his head wrapped up? Like pretty mm-hmm. often. It's 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 a very common position. And with that position, it's so hard for them to land strikes. And it's so easy for you to snap them down to the floor. So they have to post their hands on the floor. It's it's a nightmare getting caught in a front headlock. So yeah, yeah. And there's there's yeah. great options both from the gi and from no gi. I love forcing guys into turtle and attacking from there. And, and yes, I know how ironic that is. <laughs> that's right. That's your favorite position. Yeah. That's that's your offensive cycle is when you get into your turtle. It is my offensive cycle as I curl up like a little ball and wait for my opponent. I'm like a fucking porcupine or something. I guess like a turtle more accurately. So we've talked about the most likely predictable responses from your opponents when you trap them in neon belly. And I guess the question then, something else that we've talked about in the past, Matt, is this concept of critical control points. Basically, there's a lot of Mm -hmm. details that matter when you're playing really any given position or technique, but there's always going to be a few that really matter most. And those are the ones that Mm -hmm. you want to focus on. So I would ask you, in your opinion, what are the critical control points when you're on top and you're trying to play the neon belly position? Yeah, I'm just going to echo what we discussed earlier in the episode when we talked about stability. I think good foot position. So, you know, no significant gaps between your shoelaces and their hips. So keeping that shoelace glued to the hip, knee, I mean, in my opinion, 
ideally across the center line because I like to apply pressure to the far hip. Anytime you can prevent your opponent from getting on their side, I think you're going to get a lot of stability. So knee positioning, vertical posture, I believe is very important, but it's not the end all be all. You can be in a chest to chest, you know, underhook cross face scenario and then pop up to your knee. That's fine too. And possibly, possibly the most important detail would be the position of the free leg. So I have always really felt comfortable and stable in the perpendicular knee position, almost like a, you know, a 90 degree angle, like you're in a squat, right? That That's basically where I like to be. Although some people I've seen play knee on belly with their leg extended out. Again, this position doesn't feel as good to me, but definitely just not knee on the floor because you're just not going to be, you're really not in base actually, if you have your knee on the floor. Yeah, and by, by definition too, if you're doing that, you're technically not even in knee on belly as is defined by the Correct. rules. If you pop up to knee on belly, and then your knee is still on the floor, and then they regard, I don't even think you get an advantage for that because technically you never entered the knee on belly position. So good point, Steve. Mm, I would also add in terms of other critical control points, something you mentioned earlier is keeping an elbow knee connection with the knee that's on the guy's stomach because Mm -hmm. you have to be mindful of your opponent trying to throw their leg up and either get their foot on your hip or enter into a leg entanglement. So not just having your knee sticking there, but also denying access to your hip through an elbow knee connection is very important. Definitely. Yeah. And there's one other thing that might be actually the most important detail, and we haven't talked about it yet, is... I thought of something too. I wonder if it's going to be what I'm going to say. I was going to say forcing your opponent to keep their shoulders on the mat, I think is one of the most important things. Because if they can start to... Or at least not to be able to get up on their side. There's maybe one exception where you can lift their shoulders up, but if they can get to their side, mm-hmm. then you're going to be in trouble holding the position. And that's why most of the tactics that they teach us, like when, you know, especially in the gi where they talk about like, you know, oh, you want to grab the guy's lapel on the far side and you want to pull up their arm on the near side. All of those tactics are with the specific intent of making sure that your opponent keeps their their shoulders level to the floor. You never want to get to a situation where they're on their side because that basically means they're out of the position. So the only situation where you would want to do that is if you're trying to allow them to do it so that you could, for example, take their back if you can force them to turn away. But generally speaking, you want to force your opponent to keep their shoulders level to the floor. You don't want to let them get to the side. Was that what you were thinking? That's actually a good point. It was not what I was thinking. Keeping the shoulders pinned is definitely a valuable strategy. If they turn up, you you should definitely be thinking about, okay, what am I going to do next? Like, am I going to exit this system? Am I going to go into a mount? What am I going to do? Front headlock, north, south, blah, blah, blah. That is actually a really good point. I was going to say, you know, when you get to knee on belly, you can be in the position in sort of a high stance with vertical posture, and you can be in the position in a low stance with vertical posture. And I think the, you know, the taller you stand, the more susceptible you are to leg entanglement. So keeping like a lower squat where it's not easy to off balance you and to expose the space, let's say behind your knees, you know, and, and expose your, your legs. Basically, if you, if you lengthen your legs with a, with a tall stance, you're more susceptible. But if you have a lower squat, you know, you're going to be more stable and your legs will be harder to find. So I would, I would recommend people take not a vertical posture. I'm just saying keeping your hips low in the neon belly. Awesome. Awesome. And one thing I would like to expand and clarify on, I mentioned earlier the importance of keeping your opponent's shoulders like in line with the floor. It is in at least one situation okay to actually lift their shoulders off the floor. So it's not so much that their shoulders need to be touching the floor. It's that their shoulders need to be level with the floor. One of the things I like to do, especially if I'm feeling like a real bastard, is when I'm playing in the gi. Which you always are. And I'm knee riding the guy. I will take a collar grip and I'll pull their shoulders off of the floor. Yeah. Which has the effect of driving my knee into their sternum. And like, man, if you really want to force the guy to to gasp, (laughs) that is a that is a way to really, really, really demoralize them. How to make people hate you by Steve Kwan. <laughs> you know, I, I'm trying to remember where I learned that from. I think it was from my instructor, which knowing my instructor is no surprise, but it's actually a strategy. If you find that your opponent is like really giving you a hard time from there, they're, they're kind of shelled up and they're not doing anything and you want to create a reaction. If you're playing a knee ride, you can take a like a cross collar grip with your hand and pull their shoulders up off the floor. And, and even though their shoulders are not on the floor, it's actually 
really, really hard for them to move. And this is actually a strategy you can employ from mount as well. A lot of motion off of the bottom requires you to plant on your shoulders, right? Like if you think about it, if you're the guy on the bottom and you're trying to create movement, you're probably going to be planting on like your shoulders and your feet and maybe your butt. And so if you can pull the person's shoulders off of the floor, you take away that point of contact and now it makes it really hard for them to actually create Mm -hmm. good hip escapes or good hip bumps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're just effectively, you're destroying their base. (laughs) You're destroying their life. (laughs) Taking their soul. Also, I, I think it's important to, to remember, you know, if, you, if you're using neon belly as a transitionary position, a common drill you might do in class on a non-resisting opponent is the windshield wiper movement, you know, where you go from one neon belly to the other and you're windshield wiping your feet so that they can't trap you in the three-quarter mount or, or catch you in a half guard. I think in in reality, this transition is kind of, it can leave you open to get regarded for sure against someone who's good. Who, who can catch those legs. I would much rather, if I'm going to transition from neon belly to the other side, I would way rather take the route where I'm going around their head as opposed yes. to going around their legs. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, and taking that north-south as a pit stop and kind of transitioning your body around their head as opposed to around their lower body is just, it's safer, right? It makes sense because you're just, you're farther away from their guard. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a higher percentage that you're, you know, you're not going to get regarded if you take that route rather than trying to hop to the other side over their legs. Yeah. I don't like to do that windshield wiper movement where you go from neon belly on one side to the other because the guy's legs are right there. There's a good chance you're going to lose the position to a regard. What I do if I want to play that is I go to reverse neon belly and then I windshield wiper from there the way that you described. And then I go back to regular neon belly if I want to, because that way I can transition from one side to the other without having to go toward the guy's guard, which is where I want to avoid. Mm -hmm. Right on, right on. Awesome. Great chat, Matt. Any other things you want to talk about regarding neon belly? Uh, I mean, we covered it pretty extensively. I think so. Again, I think one of the main applications I use is when, you know, a lot of the time when you're in side control and you feel your opponent's going to bring their bottom knee in to create a knee elbow, you have multiple wedges that you could place in that position. A lot of the time I just put my hand there or I'll blade my hips. So I'm hip to hip and then they can, it denies them the, the knee elbow connection. But the knee ride is, is actually probably one of the safest and most efficient ways to do this. Because the shin coming across the hip is such a strong wedge that separates the the knee from the elbow. I mean, this is a position that definitely needs to be trained. And yeah, as long as you're using it as a as a means to create reactions and to prevent regarding and to look to progress your offensive cycle, man, it is super valuable. Gi, no gi. Yeah, it's a beauty. I love neon belly. Awesome, awesome. Well, if I can maybe just quickly, for all the people not paying attention, recap what we talked about here today. <laughs> When you're playing neon belly on the top, you probably are going to benefit from some predictable responses from your opponent on the bottom. There's kind of three things they're likely to do if you put them in that position. Number one is they're probably going to try to get to their side, either facing you or turning away. Number two is they might try to mess with your feet. Again, either grabbing your near side leg or the far side one. There are options for both. And number three, they might try to elevate their far leg up and get their foot on your hip or invert and get into a leg entanglement. So be aware of those. In terms of the critical control points, the most important details for for neon belly, first and foremost, good foot position making sure that your knee, the one that's riding, you don't have any gaps between your shoelaces and their hips. You want to make sure that your free leg is out of range so they can't get a good handle on it. Generally speaking, don't let them grab your legs is what you're trying to go for. Also, you want to keep a lower squat. It's very important in many cases, especially if you want to have a postured neon belly. Again, not required. You can play it sprawled out. But if you want to have a postured one, you don't want to be too tall because that will give your opponent the ability to attack your hip or isolate your leg. So you want to squat down a bit and probably keep an elbow knee connection so that they can't get at your hip or your leg. And additionally, you want to keep their shoulders level to the mat. They don't actually have to be on the mat. As I mentioned, you can pull them up, but you don't want to let them get to their side is really what you're trying to avoid. So breaking this down into the mental models that we talked about today, we talked about predictable responses. Again, 
Neon Belly is a beautiful position if you want to establish a hub position and have some very predictable responses from your opponent, which we've already broken down. We talked about the elbow-knee connection. If you're the guy on top, you want to keep an elbow-knee connection so that your opponent can't get to your hip or isolate your leg. If you're the guy on bottom, you're probably going to want to reestablish an elbow-knee connection because that's how you escape Neon Belly, or at least one way you can do it. We talked about center of gravity. You want to be mindful when you're playing this position to not have your center of gravity such that your opponent can elevate you or throw you forward. Matt beautifully described how if the guy on bottom can make you put your hands on the mat, they're probably going to get out of that position and they might even be able to attack you from there. We talked about surface area or blading. The neon belly is a great example of this because basically you're minimizing the surface area of your body basically to your knee. You're driving all of your force down through your knee into your opponent and that's a very, very powerful way to apply force. And we talked about critical control points, which again, we broke down earlier. This is the notion that any particular technique or position is going to have some details that really matter and others that are a bit more flexible. So hopefully we've done a, a good job of breaking those down. Matt, got a question. Shoot. You want to hear the listener question? Yeah, let's do it. By the way, for those of you who are on our Patreon, we've, as we've grown, we've started getting a lot more listener questions. And so we can't just cover them on the show anymore because there's too many. And additionally, when we have guests on, we like to maximize the time with the guests. So normally, unless someone specifically has a question for a guest, normally we don't do these on guest episodes. But what we do with these, if you're on our Patreon, you may have noticed that we release a bunch of mini episodes where we basically take some of the really good questions we get and we put together a a quick response could be anywhere between a few minutes up until like 20 minutes, depending on the topic. So that's a bunch of extra content that you get if you're on our Patreon, which of course we will plug and shove up your ass at the end of this podcast, as we always do. Kind of like the new coronavirus test. (laughs) Well, have you heard about that? No, but are you seriously going to tell me that there is a rectal coronavirus test? They're doing anal swabs now. Apparently China has begun doing anal swabs to, they say it's a better accurate test. And they actually, it's more like a probe because they go two inches inside. (laughs) Oh my God. I I do have to say that sounds invasive. That's one way to describe it. I wonder how the drive-through testing works if it's an anal test. (laughs) It sounds uncomfortable for both parties, but. Have you seen that episode of South Park where they determine that it is actually more beneficial to ingest food by shoving it up your ass and pooping it up your mouth yeah and then they have like a they have like a party and there's a bin in the middle of the room in case you have to crap yeah Yeah, that's awesome okay anyway believe it or not this question is actually related to what you're talking about here so let's give this thing a go (laughs) related to what we're just talking it is it is Okay. okay well i i it's more tasteful but let's let's get into it okay so here's the question In accordance with public guidelines in my local area, I've been stuck at home and unable to train since March 2020. I've attempted to find a solo buddy to train with, but I have trouble finding people whom I feel comfortable adding to my COVID bubble. On top of that, being a woman dramatically limits my rolling partner options since it immediately becomes awkward to BJJ buddy with most men in a relationship. As such, I've just been working out and drilling at home by myself and attempting to progress through instructionals on a homemade dummy. For context, I've been at Blue Belt for 2.5 years. My question is, do you have any advice on how to improve my jujitsu without having a real human to try things out on specifically any strategies for how to effectively learn or improve based on instructionals. I know that you guys talk about studying Danaher and Gordon Ryan instructionals, and I'm curious about how you approach and retain this information and apply it to your game. Matt, you want to give it a crack? I don't think you're going to get any, I think training on a dummy I've discussed in the past, why I think that they're very limited you know, it may seem cool. Oh, I can do arm bars. But but then again, what we're doing is we're basically drilling on an unresisting opponent who's not giving us any reactions. You know, I've, I've gone through phases of this and I've, I've even taught drilling like this. I think that's kind of the wrong way to drill unless you're brand new to a, a technique and you just need to like figure out how it works. Really not going to progress unless you actually have a live training partner who can who can sort of show you what what the next predictable responses is. And again, I think that this is this is a better way to drill because you can drill like this as opposed to just drilling on a stationary object. 
I don't know about the whole, you know, I'm a woman and he, and I can't get any partners because, because of sex or whatever. I, I'm not a big fan of that. I, th- I think that, you know, even <laughs> again, it, it, we kind of get into a gray area here where, where if, you know, oh, I'm going to go train with my training partner. Yeah. It's a woman, honey. I'll be right back. It's like, it's, it does kind of, I can see why that could cause issues. I don't think it should, but in a perfect world, it wouldn't, but I could see how it does. But really, you're just not going to get the same training unless you have someone in your cohort or your bubble. So it's it is worth to seek out someone like that. And I hate to think the idea that gender would hold would prevent good training in that regard. But I really do think that is the best training. I know, Steve, you've you've talked about like memory cards and and different things like that. Personally, I've never used those examples, but also I feel like I can sort of look at a technique and then use it right away not everyone can do it that way. So it's difficult. I, you know, watching instructionals, you'll definitely, you'll definitely gain a lot from that, but to not be able to actually do the moves, that's tough. It's tough to get, it's tough to get reps when you don't have a partner. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you're totally right about the grappling dummy. I mean, it just sounds like such a good idea, but the reality is Trying to learn jujitsu with a grappling dummy is like trying to learn kickboxing by going to one of those cardio kickboxing classes where you're just kind of doing aerobics. That's basically what you're doing, right? I mean, you can bang off a hundred armbar reps on a dummy. Did you get better? Yeah, I don't think you'll get better, right? Because the thing about jujitsu where you get better is when you're practicing against an opponent giving you realistic resistance. If you're just doing this against a dummy, you're going to encounter the problem that we've talked about so frequently, which is that maybe you technically know all of the motions against the dummy, but you'll never make it work in real time. Now, if you're just looking for a way to stay in shape during quarantine and you like the idea of it being BJJ themed, then a grappling dummy is fine, just like cardio kickboxing is fine. But it's probably not actually going to make your jujitsu any more effective. So then it comes into a matter of having a a partner. And I, I totally get this, right? Like I'm in the same, just due to my situation. I've also been off the mats since March. I really haven't trained in a year and it, it has been a challenge for me because jujitsu is really the only type of physical activity that I enjoy doing. So it, it is a challenge. I will actually say that, I mean, I can't say for certain because again, I haven't been on the mats for so long. But it really feels like focusing on this podcast has made me way better at jujitsu. Not necessarily better than actually training, but certainly better than doing nothing because it's forced me to organize my thoughts and to basically like productize all of the knowledge that I have and integrate my systems with mats and make sure they make sense. And then when we started getting guests on, like if you've got like Lachlan Giles or Travis Stevens on the freaking podcast, like that's the real litmus test. Because if I put my ideas out there and they say, yes, that makes sense, then I know we're doing, we're saying the right thing. So I have found that actually focusing on the mental side of things has been very helpful. Flashcards and stuff, they they have a place, but they're not for everything, right? Like if you 70% know a technique and you're just patching in little details here and there, I'm not sure if flashcards are really going to help you. Flashcards are great if you're coming in like stone cold and you're just overwhelmed with details and you don't even know where to start. They're a good way to get the ball rolling and at least start getting things into your muscle memory. Same with technique visualization. But at the end of the day, there is no substitute for a real opponent. And I agree with Matt that like, I wish we lived in a world where gender was not a consideration and you could just pick the perfect training partner. But I also understand that like the reality is if you're training with someone who's going to make it weird, they're going to make it weird. (laughs) And I can understand why you would not be comfortable with that. So it's a hard thing, especially if you're inviting them into your home, right? Yeah, I'll say this. I've used a variety of different dummies. I don't have one, but I've used one where it's just a stationary dummy with foldable limbs and you can do reps or whatever. I don't I don't particularly find those very effective. I have the CXT, which is like a uh, BOSU or a Swiss ball with with short stubby limbs. It's basically built like Steve. And uh, that <laughs> <laughs> and <then laughs> sorry, I just had to throw that in there. Uh, that that actually you can get a pretty good workout in. There is workout routines you can do with it, but again, it gets it gets old pretty fast. It's more just for like knee. You could actually get really good at knee rides stability doing drills with that. But again, it has limitations. My personal favorite dummies are throwing dummies, specifically ones that are like at least sixty to ninety pounds, because then you're actually getting a workout and you are practicing getting your throws in. 
keep in mind you're just literally doing the throws. You are not practicing grip fighting. You're not practicing footwork. You're not practicing predictable responses. You're not practicing combinations really, okay? But you are getting a workout, lifting that dummy up over and over again, and you're getting reps throwing it. So there is benefit to that. Plus, most training partners don't want to get thrown a hundred times. Whereas if you have a throwing dummy, you can throw it till the cows come home. So I do like throwing dummies. I will say that I think there is value in throwing dummies, especially if you are a wrestler or you're a judoka, or you just want to practice those techniques and get a lot of reps in. I think that that is actually a good dummy. But on the mental side of things, there's actually a strategy I think you could use, and it might be a bit ambitious. This person's a blue belt, right? A blue belt of two years? Blue belt of two and a half years. And keep in mind, one of those years, they're probably not training because of the the COVID mm-hmm. thing. Maybe you're a blue belt of one, one and a half years with live training. I, I actually don't know your situation. But anyways, you know, still still a junior rank. This is a little bit ambitious, but what something that I think, at least for my learning style, that would help me is as I'm studying tape, instructionals, whatever, I would start to write my own lesson plan as if I'm going, okay, I'm imagining I'm going to go teach a class tonight for an hour, hour and a half. I'm going to design my class. So I would say, okay, tonight I'm going to be working on Neon Belly. What are the critical control points of Neon Belly? How could I teach it to someone so that they, so that I'm teaching a system or a position or a technique to someone else? And then what would be an appropriate drill to apply that move and to get reactions? And then, you know, how would I teach that to someone else? Because I've found that in practicing becoming a better instructor and building lesson plans, by osmosis, I absorb the information even better. So I understand maybe, I don't know if one day you want to be a, a even a black belt or not. I assume you do. Or one day you want to be an instructor. I don't know if you do or not. It's fine if you do or you don't. But if you think about that as, as okay, tonight I have to teach something. How am I going to teach it? Let's write out a lesson plan. So to, to really see that you're not just regurgitating and memorizing information, but that you could actually understand it and pass it on to someone effectively. And I think this is one of the best ways to gain a deeper understanding of, of anything, but Brazilian jiu-jitsu for sure. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And I second that, like that kind of ties into what I said, which is that, you know, when we went into lockdown, you and I decided to really double down and commit to making BJJ mental models, like much more of a product. And that's meant a lot more work. And the process of having to organize all of my thoughts like I said, I can't really prove it because I haven't been on the mats in a long time, but it really feels like that mental exercise of basically having to build out this material into a format that other people can understand. It feels like it has made me a lot better. So I would definitely consider that. Two other things you could try. One of them, you may have heard of it. It was getting some buzz a while ago. There's a website called Down to Roll. You can go to it at downtoroll.com. Basically, it's a website put together by Howard Shaw, and it's essentially a place where you can say, here's where I am, here's who I am, here is the level of commitment I'm willing to make to um, pandemic responsibility, and it will match you up with someone at the same level of interest. So if you're in an area and you don't have someone you live with and you don't personally know anyone that is, you know, willing to kind of meet your guidelines, this is, <laughs> I guess it's kind of like a dating website, but for grapplers in a pandemic landscape. So that's downtoroll.com. I haven't used it personally, but I saw a lot of buzz going on around about it earlier. So you might want to check it out. Now, if you do live with someone, Something that I have discovered, a little life hack. Matt, did I tell you about our new rug? You did not. Is it Turkish? No, actually. So we had this like Persian type rug in our living room. But the problem was that like it's, we got cats. It was getting like covered with cat hair. They kept puking on it. The baby kept spilling milk on it. It was turning into just a giant disaster. So we got rid of it. And also, you know, we have people living down below us. So we were looking for rugs with better sound dampening. So my wife was Googling around and she found this company called Ruggable. You can go to Ruggable.com. And what they do is they make rugs where the top and the bottom can separate. So there's like a bottom piece of the rug and the top piece is basically like a layer that you can peel off. So it's really cool because it's machine washable and it's almost like a, it's like a polyester thing. It's much softer than a real rug and it's replaceable and it's like much more stain resistant. So we got this thing thinking it's going to be perfect for the, you know, because we got the kid, perfect because we got the cats. So we got this like big eight inch circular rug in the middle of the living 
living room with this awesome padding underneath. What I did not anticipate is this thing is the perfect BJJ competition circle. <laughs> like it's absolutely perfect. It's nice. got the padding under it. So it's nice and soft. Even if you got people down below it or down below you, they can't hear it. If you're grappling around, I mean, I wouldn't want to throw someone, but you know, you, they won't hear you just scuffling around on the ground. Probably the top part is resistant to any sort of crap that you could get on it. It's not a rug texture. It feels like a tatami actually. And if it does get dirty, you can take it off and machine wash it. This is by far the best solution I, and I am not getting paid by these fuckers, just so you know. This is by far the best solution I have found for home grappling because it means that you don't have to like convert one of your rooms into like a BJJ pleasure room. Like I know some people have been doing, you don't have to drop thousands of dollars converting, you know, a room to a home mat space. I don't have enough space in my place. My wife would kill me if I converted like the baby's bedroom into a jujitsu gym. <laughs> so this has been the perfect solution for us for like home grappling. So if you do live with a partner who is, doesn't train jujitsu, but maybe they're willing to get involved and help you bang out a few reps, this is a great affordable option. It looks nice in the house. It doesn't take up any extra space. So my rule is this like eight foot circle. I call it the circle of death. And if anyone in the house steps into the circle of death, it's fucking on. Like I I have (laughs) full carte blanche to just like single leg them onto the floor and tap them out. So that is the rule. Ruggable.com. Highly recommended if you want to do jujitsu at home, but you don't want to be a fucking weirdo with a pleasure room. So anyway, there you go. Jiu-jitsu pleasure room. Yeah. So we, <laughs> between, between like, between these guys and the bidet and all of these other companies, I feel like we should be getting a lot of affiliate fees, but, but seriously, check it out. I was kind of shocked by how well this thing accidentally served as like a home jujitsu training solution. Cool. So there's a big ass long answer to that question. I uh, hope that was helpful. Matt, any other closing thoughts you want to share before we close this one off? Negative. Beautiful. I think it was a good chat. Well, then let's make some money here. For those of you who support us on Patreon, we greatly appreciate it. For those of you who don't, please do consider it. You can do that at patreon.com slash models. Like I mentioned earlier on the show, really, we're trying to turn this thing into a complete solution. There's a lot more to it than just the podcast and the way you get access is by going to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash models. We have multiple different price tiers, depending on your level of commitment and your your financial disposable income. There is definitely something there for you regardless. If you get on there, you get a lot of awesome value ads, like extra premium content, like our now soon-to-be-complete game planning series that'll help you build out a game planning strategy over a seven-part audio course. We also offer narrated feedback roles through a really cool online platform we use called Technique. So if you get on there, then you can shoot us your videos, and we'd be happy to break them down and explain how the concepts on the show relate. And also that'll give you access to our Discord community as well, which is one of, I think, actually the coolest things that we offer to our patrons. We have a a really thriving Discord community. If you want to talk to us or like-minded people or even a lot of the guests who have been on the show in the past, many of them are in that community. So it's a really awesome chat group for for like-minded people. I have personally found it's really helped me maintain social connections while being isolated at home. Please do consider supporting us. It really makes this whole initiative worthwhile for us, and I'm positive we'll make it worthwhile for you. Again, that's patreon.com slash models. You can, of course, also go to our website, bjjmentalmodels.com. That's where we've got a full database of all of the concepts we talk about here on the show. There's also a contact form where you can shoot us an email right from the website. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store to pick up gi patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join to get on our mailing list. There's thousands of people on there now, and we send out more detail and more content every week, usually on a Friday. Additionally, you can also follow us on Facebook and on Instagram. Thanks again so much for everyone's time and attention listening. Really do appreciate you guys, especially the ones who support us on Patreon and those of you who have stuck with us from episode one. Really great chat. Hope this was helpful. It was fun to get really specific about a a very, very detailed technique again. So again, thank you so much for your attention and talk to you guys next time. Take care, guys. Thanks a lot.